Alright, hello everybody. Today is Friday. Another Anything Goes Friday. Welcome to the show. Just a couple of quick announcements before we begin. The first is a reminder that this show is available for free downloads at Launchpad 1. There's a link to that in the description box. You can download the audio version of this program as a pure podcast. Take it on the go, anywhere and anyhow. If you would like to download the video version, you can use YouTube Premium, but that one you have to pay for. Launchpad 1 is free. It's under the same name, Black Box Online Radio, but the easiest way to find it is to go into the description box and click on the link. And, of course, there is always the buymeacoffee.com page. If you would like to make a contribution to support this show, anything is welcome and appreciated. All of the funds will be devoted to purchasing new equipment or true crime books to talk about with you guys here on Black Box Online Radio. And as always, please like and subscribe. But any supporter on buymeacoffee.com will get a shout-out on Zodiac Mondays. Now, the last thing that I will share with you guys is that there are now more than 1,000 episodes of Black Box Online Radio, and about six months ago I had the opportunity to read a book called The Flat Tire Murders, and there's a very big section in it on the Miami Strangler, and I did an episode called, Who Was the Miami Strangler? Florida's Darkest Mystery, and I would invite you to have a listen to that one as well as anything else that you might be interested in in the true crime world that you can find on Black Box Online Radio. But with the Miami Strangler story, there were a series of homicides that occurred in South Florida, and some people believe that there are links among them. Other people believe that definitely, definitely some of these crimes were not committed by the same person. And we're going to see some similar things today when I talk about the Route 8 killer. Firstly, I have to give a big shout out to Noah, who has provided me with a lot of information and written a very large piece for this show, which I will read off here. And Noah also wants to promote a Facebook page, which is talking about the Route 8 killer called the Campville Investigations. As I said, you can find it on Facebook. So today we're going a little bit north from Florida and going to the state of Connecticut, and I would like to read off something that Noah has shared with me here, and it says, Main Premise. The main premise of this post is a series of unsolved murders that have occurred in or around the same areas of Harwinton and Litchfield from the 1980s up till potentially 2021. Some victims have been found in the same wooded area off of Exit 41 on Route 8 in the Campville section of Harwinton, New England. Having its fair share of convicted serial murders and known to be active around this time drew much attention to the question of whether or not the unsub is someone that has already been convicted. A few of them that have even claimed to be responsible for these murders are people such as Stephen Hayes, who was half responsible and convicted in the internationally known Cheshire home invasion. No evidence for any truthfulness in these claims has ever been presented. And a very quick interjection is, sometimes people confess to crimes that they didn't commit. Sometimes these are people who have been convicted and they're behind bars, and they're just messing around because they have absolutely nothing else to do. An example of this would be Henry Lee Lucas. Another example is some people believe that Otis Toole confessed to other crimes, even the murder of Adam Walsh, but we simply do not know. I mean, sometimes people are behind bars and they confess to crimes, and then they just do it in somewhat of a 
braggadocio way, braggadocious way would be a better way of putting it, and recently there was a discovery made in the case of the El Dorado Jane Doe from Arkansas, where somebody was more or less taunting the police saying that he knew what happened, but he wouldn't give away the details, and it turns out that he was indeed an active participant in her murder, and the forensics have uh, now revealed that. And uh, an episode on the El Dorado Jane Doe is available on the Lord and Arts channel, numerous episodes actually, and uh, at least two of them to be precise. But let's get back to this one here. But I just wanted to um, go off on that side note for a brief moment. Sometimes people confess to uh, committing crimes that they didn't commit. I will be going over all that I have found in, found to be available to the public about each individual homicide in chronological order, starting with the six victims publicly tied to the case. Then I will go in chronological order when listing information about victims that aren't part of the main narrative. Now, there isn't much released about the specific details of these crimes. However, what draws others and myself to the fact that there is possibly a serial killer involved is the eerily similar victimology in many of these cases. Like I said, not only will I be discussing the six victims known to the media, I will also be trying to uncover and tie together other missing persons and cold cases that I've connected to the series myself or found information about. Is there a serial killer in or around Connecticut that has yet to be caught, or has Route 8 just become a popular dumping grounds for serial killers around New England? Either way, there's something fishy going on. Okay, let's begin with the first case, the case that has the least similarities to the rest. And before I say anything further, on this channel, I do a regular segment now about the Long Island serial killer, and there is a very big theory in the Long Island serial killer mystery that they uncovered a serial killer graveyard in 2010, and it's just that. The theory is that some people think that multiple serial killers were using the same part of Gilgo Beach in New York as a dumping ground. I mean, we don't know 100%, it's still an unsolved case, but that is a theory that it's not a single killer. Multiple people just happened to choose this location because it was it was convenient for the um, geographic area. It was a very secluded part of Long Island. Not to mention that Long Island is also very close to New York City, perhaps the most um, populated area in on the entire eastern seaboard, maybe in the, even in the entire continental U.S. So there is always the possibility that a large population is going to mean that there are more serial killers who are present and they're going to be operating in certain areas. And these highways can be very, very strong breeding grounds for serial killers. Say, for example, somebody could even be in the city of New York and then they're going to Connecticut to commit the crimes and back and forth and so on. I mean, there are lots of serial killers out there who are tied to highways. Roger Kibbe, the I-5 Strangler, her Baumeister, the I-70 um, Strangler, and we just recently had a DNA breakthrough in the case of the I-65 killer. So they're very much connected to transportation zones. This happens all the time, and not only with serial killers, but in other aspects of life. But let's talk about the first victim that has the least amount of similarities to the rest of the uh, Root 8 victims, and his name is Jack Franklin Andrews, the one and only male victim. On November, in November of 1986, 
A 26-year-old Jack Andrews was a Midwestern transient hitchhiker whose remains were found by a trucker around 10 a.m. on that day. At then a running rest stop on Route 8, just before Exit 41 in Litchfield, Andrews' remains were found cut up and his body was sexually disturbed. Police were never able to locate his head, hands, legs, or penis. The rest stop was often described by people as a small, dimly lit area that was well known for its presence of truckers, prostitutes, and even homosexual men. Police were quick to question truckers, however, they had come up with no substantial leads. Between 1980 and 1986, a series of murders happened in the United States known as the Castration Murders, all under similar circumstances to Andrews. Convicted serial killer Richard W. Rogers, a Staten Island nurse, was known for picking up gay men at clubs and bars before leaving them dismembered in trash bags. He was once a person of interest in the Andrews case, although no evidence has been concluded. That's all that's known to this day about the Jack Andrews case, and the investigation went cold in the year 2000. I mean, very, very heinous crimes. Big uh, rest in peace to Jack Andrews. Absolutely terrible way that he died, but because I do the segment on the Long Island serial killer, we often get asked the question, what does it mean when the killer is dismembering the body? And I think that there could be two big reasons. One could be anger and frustration and hatred, all of those negative emotions, and the other one could be some type of convenience involved with the transportation and disposal of the remains, and also some type of expectation that the remains wouldn't be tied to a specific person or the identity of the victim wouldn't have been learned. But you may have also noticed that the penis of Jack Andrews was cut off, and I'm going to share something with you guys. I've only ever seen two episodes of Criminal Minds, the TV show, right? And in one episode, they talked about if a serial killer targets the genitals of a victim, there is usually a very specific motivation and reason to do so. Now, it could just be that he was targeted by a homosexual serial killer who was ashamed of his homosexuality, or it could be that there was something much more personal involved, and there could have been a familiar connection. The next one, Karen Brandy Everett, November 1988. The body of 25-year-old Karen Everett was found by hunters in Harwinton on November 16, 1988, in a wooded area off of Valley Road, a few back roads away from Exit 41, a few miles from the rest stop where Jack Andrews' headless torso was found back in 1986. Everett was found wearing nothing but a tank top, and it was later determined that she was strangled at an undetermined place, and later her remains were brought to the wooden areas. Everett grew up in Waterbury and was living in Waterbury during the time of her death. Her boss at the time had confirmed that she was struggling with a drug problem. She was also known as a prostitute to work on Center Street in Waterbury. There were no leads or ties to any other case until two months later. Mildred, also known as Millie Alvarado, in January of 1989... Mildred Alvarado was a 30-year-old mother of four from Waterbury, Connecticut, and was found deceased. Authorities had received an anonymous phone call indicating that there was another body right around the wooded area off of Valley Road, Exit 41, on Route 8, just next to the Naugatuck River. Just two months before the police found the strangled remains of 25-year-old Karen Everett, police determined that Alvarado had 
was having a history of drug abuse and being a known prostitute that would work around the center of the street in Waterbury, and she matched up with the same victimology as the November victim, Karen Everett. Alvarado, like Everett, was a good-looking young petite Hispanic woman from Waterbury. I mean, I'm not sure if um, Karen Everett was Hispanic, but I think they just mean that young and uh, petite and good-looking. She was eventually strangled to death by someone whom the police believed to be the same suspect. Alvarado was found deceased wearing blue jeans, a denim vest, and a black bracelet. Her shoes had never been found. The police were able to identify an anonymous caller that indicated that finding Alvarado's remains, but they ruled this person out as a potential suspect. You see, I wish we had the details on that. So somebody calls in and makes some, some comment about finding Alvarado's remains, and then they, have, they do, but this person is just ruled out as a potential suspect, a prankster, or a hoaxer. Why? And I don't even know if that information is going to be made available to the general public. But are you noticing this with other true crime cases, like, say, the Zodiac Killer mystery, for example? And we have somebody confess that they wrote um, three of the letters in 1967 after the murder of Sherry Jo Bates as a prank. Anything else you want to share? No. And um, I'm kind of getting a same vibe here, but sometimes the authorities do not reveal everything for a reason. So I will just continue to trust them. Authorities say that these two specific cases could be linked to a string of serial murders from 1987 to 1989 around Dartmouth and New Bedford, Massachusetts. These killings of nine women became known as the highway murders due to the victims, like in Harwinton, being dumped off of highways. In this case, they, were also, they also had a connection to Interstate 95 and Route 140 in Freetown, Massachusetts. Some victims were also found to be drug addicted, as well as prostitutes, and around the same age as the Route 8 victims, many of them were killed in different manners. Evelyn Betancourt In January of 1993, Evelyn Betancourt, just like the previous two victims, was another prostitute from Waterbury. She struggled with a drug problem, and she was found just off of Valley Road near Exit 41 in Harwinton. Separate from the pre two previous victims from the late 1980s, she was determined to have been shot rather than strangled. For the, for the first little over a year, police suspected that the slaying could be related to the Route 8 murders for obvious reasons. That was until 1995 when Michael J. Curry, the ex-boyfriend of Betancourt, found himself sitting in a jail cell playing with a deck of cards that happened to have had her cold case file printed on a card. Mm, that's kind of an odd thing to say. He bragged to other inmates, leading him to eventually confessing to the authorities about Betancourt's murder claiming that he had nothing to do with the other homicides, and he strictly dumped her there because he knew about the previous murders. Authorities confirmed this corroboration and ruled him out as a suspect in the other slayings. Well, um, I mean, that depends on what, th what their process was. Again, very, very little information for us. Side case. In January of 1993, a photograph was taken of journal by, John by journalist John Murray. Journalist John Murray. Almost a tongue twister there, as long as his name wasn't like Joe Hansen or something at the end. Yes, a, a photograph was taken by journalist John Murray in downtown Waterbury during the midst of the short-lived Rude 8 killer hysteria. It depicted sex worker Frederica Spinola working the streets of downtown Waterbury and giving an interview to John. John asked, If I told you that I was the killer and offered you $20, would you go with me? And Rika didn't hesitate. 
I'd go, she said. You don't look like a killer. Once again, on a personal interjection, because I've talked about several different true crime cases here on this channel, it's important to remember that serial killers have a very good ability to put the victims, or anybody at all, in a false sense of security. That's the vibe that they're going to be giving out to people. Completely non-threatening. There's not going to be any hint of danger in this person's presence. The victims who survive serial killers talk about that all the time. Or at the very least, they say that maybe he'll be in this one location, and he'll be light as a cloud. Then he'll go into the next location, and he's like a Jekyll and a Hyde. And some people genuinely do have mental illnesses who are committing these horrific acts, and there's reasons for that. And other times, it's just personality, or it's just the ability to put on this facade of being non-threatening. So, absolutely. I mean, it's never appropriate to say that someone doesn't look like a killer. And the um, article continues by saying, Everything seemed all good for Frederica until December 9th of 1994. Frederica either fell or jumped or was pushed from a moving vehicle, traveling around 45 miles per hour on Route 8 in Harwinton. Sadly, she succumbed to her injuries later at the hospital. This very commonly gets tied into this. I figured I'd throw it out there because it's a crazy coincidence, but if you dig in deep enough, you'll find that someone by the name of Andrew F. Keene was charged with manslaughter, or at least supposedly. The next one is Olga Marie Cornelis Ubiera, November 4th, 1994, which was a Tuesday. Authorities responded to the report of a mutilated woman's remains found off of Route 262 Waterbury Road in Thomaston, only eight miles from the notorious Valley Road dump site. Police confirmed that the remains were of Olga Maria Cornelis Ubiera of Waterbury. Ubiera was found naked and her body was mutilated. The cause of death wasn't made public. Unlike the rest of the victims, Ubiera wasn't confirmed to have worked in prostitution or suspected of working in prostitution. Her experience with drugs wasn't mentioned. This case also remains cold. Jessica Muskus, M-U-S-K-U-S, -S, in November of 2006. In August of 2004, 22-year-old Jessica Muskus was reported missing by her mother when she disappeared from the Bunker Hill neighborhood in Waterbury after supposedly planning to meet a college friend she had just met. All hope was lost on November 14, 2006. Just being clear, that is two years later. A hunter found the human skull of a woman adjacent to the Exit 41 sign in Harwinton, thrown from the bottom of an embankment. This led to the finding of the rest of the mutilated remains, which ended up being those of Jessica Muskus. Her cause of death was never publicly made known, although her family assures that she was never involved in any type of drug use or prostitution. That concludes the six main victims talked about with regard to the situation of the Route 8 killer. Now, you might be seeing that um, 2004 was the final um, six victims, the final victim of the six, and the first one that we, um, we just went through was Jack Franklin Andrews in 2000, excuse me, not 2000, 1986. So over a period of about 18 years, which I confess is a very long reign of terror for a serial killer. I mean, a lot of serial killers have a typical reign of terror, perhaps of um, 12 years, 13 years. This is 18 years to begin with. And there could have been additional crimes going 
even after that. So I would like to ask you, though, if this is by chance the first time you've heard about this case, or if you are somewhat of a newcomer to the story, or even if you have experience, what are your instincts telling you already? Do you believe that this is the story of a single serial killer who is indeed targeting women and possibly one man? Or is this something to the exact opposite side where there are unconnected homicides and it's just because it's happening near this Route 8 specific area, it's a convenient dumping ground and there are murderers happening. I mean, here's something also about New England. Okay, all of my American brothers and sisters will know this inside and out. When you're out west in, say, Utah and Nevada, where I was earlier this year, Texas, how about that one, Arizona, there are just wide open spaces and you can drive for a bazillion miles without seeing anything other than the dirt and the sand and those little tumbleweed things that roll on by. In New England, you're going to have a completely different geographical setup because you're going to just have these um, all types of small towns intertwined, and you're not necessarily going to have the same type of access for a dumping ground, and is it possible that there are multiple killers who have operated over a period of time and have just been using this area off of Route 8 because it is a convenient dumping ground? And you heard in this post, several of the victims were either known or believed to have worked in prostitution. It is so saddening, but many victims of serial killers are indeed prostitutes or sex workers or escorts for the following reason. It's just very easy to get them to a secluded area. You can get them into your vehicle and then that person can drive to a secluded area. I mean, Robert Christian Hansen, a serial killer from Anchorage, Alaska, known as the Butcher Baker, said that he could get a sex worker into his car and he could throw a pair of handcuffs on her so fast that it was like a reflex. I mean, people can be abducted very easily because they're already halfway going along with it to begin with, so they become easy targets. Not to mention that many other serial killers are also sexually motivated, and they want to prey on sex workers because sometimes they even want to be with them intimately first, and other times they also just represent something sexual, and there's a certain type of sexual frustration that fuels serial killers to commit these heinous types of actions. Maybe they had some type of um, inappropriate experiences with their parents growing up. It could be lack of bonding, or it could be actual things like molestation and rape and other forms of sexual abuse, and that um, that is driving them to recreate the cycle of destructive behaviors. And Dr. Julie Armstrong has talked about this in um, some very, very precise terms, that a serial killer wants the victims to feel pain, mis misery, and suffering, and ultimately death, because they felt pain, misery, and suffering when they were young, and now they want to recreate these experiences for other people. And there's that proverb that the child who is not loved by the village will burn it down to feel its warmth. And I think that there is something to, um, to well, that we should agree with in that. But the way that I phrased it back in 2019 when I was talking a lot more about serial killers is that it's almost as if the serial killer is trying to strive toward the victims because he wants to be close to them. Sometimes a she even, they want to be very close to the victims. They desire to be with them, whether it means intimately, socially, romantically, sexually, 
But then, because of the abuse or the lack of bonding that they've experienced as kids, they feel that they are unworthy of the approval of this person, and the only thing they can do is try to destroy them, to murder them, because they're doing it sometimes out of rage, that they will just never have these complete experiences. They desire them because of urges, and um, they desire they desire to be with them because of sensations in the body, but once they actually get close, they then want to inflict pain and misery on them because they're recreating the experiences that they had in childhood. And with this case, I think that it's almost, um, almost uh, impossible to give a 100% certified diagnosis of what is going on with the killer because we aren't even sure if there is a single killer. In the Long Island serial killer mystery, you could make a case, okay, well, maybe there are two or three killers. The Zodiac killer mystery, you could make a case, maybe there's one, two, or three killers. But um, I think the murder of Jack Andrews in 1986, where he was castrated, I mean, I don't know if that's before or after death, but that does seem extraordinarily different than the crimes that occurred in the later 1980s, the murders of Karen Everett and Millie Alvarado. But um, I, I really think that the murders of the women are a little bit more similar, and I'm also noticing that only some of the victims were working in prostitution, and, and only uh, some of the victims were not. So that could be also a point that is suggesting that there are multiple killers, but um, based on the information that we have, there really is quite, um, it's quite difficult to say, but I would love to hear your first instincts. And right now I would like to go over an article from the Waterbury Observer. This was made available at waterburyobserver.org. And I told you that uh, Noah had recommended a Facebook page, and when I was searching for it, I found a video that had been made by Robert Muldoon, where he is talking about the murders, and that was on Facebook. And he is the author of this article here. It's called Into the Investigation of Unsolved Murders Out of the Cold. Since 1988, eight women have been killed along the Route 8 corridor of north of Waterbury. Six remain unsolved, and a seventh is shrouded in unanswered questions. Clockwise from the top is Karen Everett, Billy Alvarado, Frederica Spinola, and Jessica Muscus. And in April of 2020, I was in the pandemic lockdown in Boston, in my apartment, and I was surrounded by unopened boxes, some that had not been peeked into for decades. After my mother had died, we sold our family home of 50 years, and I had a lot of boxes to rummage through. Buried deep in one box was a folder I hadn't touched since 1993. I had left my career in journalism. Printed in faded ink on the tab was Waterbury. I had no idea what I was going to find. And I still had the files and the notes from a huge story that I had been working on when I left my job as the police reporter for the Register Citizen newspaper in Torrington, Connecticut. A sudden surge of memories hit, following by pain, regret, shame, and that the story was never published. I had to call John Murray, the publisher of the Waterbury Observer, immediately. He is the only one in the world who could possibly understand. On January 6 of 1993, a woman's body was found off of Valley Road in the Campville section of Harwinton. The following day, the Connecticut State Police identified her as Evelyn Betancourt, age 27, of Waterbury, who had been shot in the head four times. Six weeks earlier, in 1992, another woman had been found in Waterbury on Chase Road, and in 1988 and 89, two other women's bodies were found in the Campville section of Harwinton on the Litchfield border. 
dumped along the East Naugatuck River. But I should point out that, um, remember what we said about Evelyn Betancourt, that there was a confession in there, and that someone was trying to, uh, pass it off as a serial killer because they knew of the other crimes. But, um, you know, even if someone says something like that, we don't always have to take the words of criminals at face value. In 1993, John Murray and I worked for the Registered Citizen in Torrington. John is an award-winning photojournalist, and me, I was a 33-year-old rookie reporter just trying to hang on. The story was John's idea. These bodies keep showing up in our backyard, meaning Harwinton was in our paper's coverage. We need to go on the streets and see where these women are being killed. Anxiety in the region was high. And one more time, if anybody would like to read this article in its entirety. It is called Out of the Cold, Investigation into Unsolved Murders by Robert Muldoon, available at waterburyobserver.com. So, I'm noticing that there really are major differences here, because some of the victims are strangled. At least one possible victim was shot, but uh, that there appears to be some type of um, um, complication with that one. Multiple victims were mutilated, and it really is um, quite difficult to say. When you see that serial killers are not showing any type of consistent pattern, I will share something with you guys about pattern-based serial killers. Back in 2019, I said I was talking a lot about them on the channel, and I was like, okay, serial killers have a pattern, right? They do things that make sense, right? And they just do the same thing over and over again, right? 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 Wrong. No, they don't. When you look at serial killers, almost always there are going to be exceptions, and they aren't following a particular rule book. Let's say, for example, the Zodiac Killer. The Zodiac Killer shot four out of his five confirmed victims. Cecilia Shepard was murdered on September 27th of 1969 at Lake Berryessa. Really, it's she passed away two days later in the hospital. So that means that, um, but she is still the only victim that was stabbed to death officially by the Zodiac. That's a change in the pattern. All the other victims were shot. How about the Golden State Killer, who committed, I mean, more than a dozen murders, at least 13 murders, more than 50 rapes, and 120 burglaries? Were you hearing those numbers? That means he was inconsistent and not following a pattern. In other times, you can find that serial killers are changing the pattern because they get interrupted and they panic and they just have to do it in a different way to avoid capture because that's more important forget the pattern just so well, this is a convenient way to kill people no if somebody is about to bust them and they're going to jail for the rest of their lives sometimes the death penalty no they're going to respond in a different way and one of these such people could have been jack the ripper to the people who entertain a single Jack the Ripper theory, there is the murder of Long Liz Stride, which occurred on the night of the double event, where Liz Stride had her throat slashed, and then the Ripper supposedly went away. Fifteen minutes later, murdered Catherine Eddowes and mutilated her. So, the reason why is because number one squealed a bit, so he couldn't do his thing, so said the Ripper in the Saucy Jackie postcard, that goes to show you that serial killers do not have to operate by any specific guidelines. So it's completely possible that the murder 
of this uh, first victim, the male victim, could have been the same killer who is this Route 8 killer, or it could also be that there were just a series of unconnected murders. But a lot of the crimes that I've been talking about occurred in the 80s and 90s, and there is an article that was written by Bill Leuchart, L-E-U-H-A-R-D-T. Well, I butchered that one. L-E-U-K-H-A-R-D-T. Yeah, that's why I'm spelling it out, so I spell it correctly. Bill Leuchart, and this was written for the Hartford Current from Hartford, Connecticut, and it was published in 1994. The mutilated body of an unidentified woman found Tuesday off of Route 262 was the fifth woman found near the roads adjacent to Route 8 since 1988. The victim was described by the police as a Hispanic in her early 30s with long wavy hair and was naked. A factory worker driving past the body at 10.45 a.m. in the bushes of a small gravel pit noticed something 12 feet off of Route 262, a busy two-lane road. And um, that should also suggest something else, that the victims do not seem to be clothed or left in the same condition. They're not completely naked every time, and you also heard that another victim was wearing only a tank top, so that also could leave some uh, room for doubt, or just some, just some ideas as to what is happening. Police are investigating whether this killing is connected to the slayings of four other women, all with police records in Waterbury found off of Route 8 since 1988. The killings remain unsolved. Two were strangled, one was stabbed, and the fourth was shot. Three of those murders, among 19 other unsolved killings of women since 1985, are under investigation by the Connecticut Homicide Task Force. It was created in 1992 to determine if a serial killer or killers were active in the state. I mean, really, just these um task force. I mean, it's always beneficial if a task force is able to catch a serial killer, but this one is just trying to figure out are all these killings connected the same way we are here? There is no obvious cause of death, and we don't know who she is, State the police sergeant Scott Homara said at the scene of the body. We have 20 detectives assigned to this, and we're trying to go into the area and get the police to try and identify her. The body was found a mile from Chase River Road in Waterbury, where a vagrant was collecting cans and found convicted prostitute Mary Jo Markowitz dead from stab wounds in 1992. That murder, not on the task force list, remains unsolved. And yes, that's the first time I've married Mary, mentioned Mary Jo Markowitz. We're not drawing any conclusions, but there definitely are other similarities. With such close proximity to the cluster of other killings, it would be foolish for us not to consider it. You know, sometimes you just have to look into these crimes and try to find out if there is a connection. Because that could be the key to everything, the key to solving the mystery. We have too many unanswered questions. Police believe the woman, whom we've been uh, discussing, whose body was found in 94, was killed elsewhere and dumped on the roadside, in the investigator said. With the Western District Major Crime Squad, which removed the objects near the body, including roadside trash for examination, state police declined to provide details about the mutilation, but a source close to the investigation said one of the woman's breasts had been cut off. None of the previous four victims were found mutilated in a, in a similar manner. Now, that just leaves more, um, more doubt about a single killer operating, and that could also possibly support the theory that there was, um, that there is just a series of unconnected murders taking place, and people are using this part of the country as a connected, or sorry, an unconnected dumping ground.
But because this crime uh, occurred in 1994, actually, first I'll just cite the source one more time. If you would like to read this article in its entirety, it was written in the Hartford Current at current.com, C-O-U-R-A-N-T, Current. I'm, uh, I, I spelled it right that time. Spelled something right, anyway. And it's called Connecticut Woman's Mutilated Body Found Off of Route 8, one more time by Bill Loikart. Okay, so, because this um, crime was in 1994, this was the murder of Olga Maria Cornelis Ubiera, who was um, discovered on Tuesday, November 4th of 1994. And um, I uh, have shared some things about her at the beginning and throughout the duration of this episode. But now is where I will turn it over to you. What do you think is happening? Is this a serial killer? Or do these crimes seem unconnected to you, and people are just using this place as a dumping ground? Maybe they're long-haul drivers. Maybe they are staying in some of the nearby cities. It doesn't only have to be New York City. I was just reading an article from a Hartford newspaper. It could have also been Hartford, Connecticut. And that's another thing that I wanted to talk about with the geography of New England. You have a big concentration of urban areas. Hartford, Providence, and Rhode Island. If you go far enough, you'll get to Boston, Massachusetts, but that'll also be somewhat of a drive, and then you'll also have all this, all the places in Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, and they're going to be certain interconnections, particularly using I-95. What do you make of that? Is this just a place where people are trying to dump the bodies of victims at night, or is this a serial killer who has somewhat of an inconsistent uh, motive, but someone who is just abducting women, and possibly one man. Do you think that there's any significance in the fact that some victims were sex workers and others were not? I mean, is this the same person? Or does that suggest multiple killers? Please weigh in in the comment section down below, and feel free to check out any of the sources that I have cited in this episode. Anybody can write the show at blackboxonlineradio at AOL.com. You can also get me on Facebook. My personal Facebook is in the description box. And I will see you over on Instagram for the bonus podcast, Blackboxnade88, over on Instagram. Until next time.